This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Frank Garitti, a historian of sport in 20th century social movements. This episode is about cheerleading and the history of sport. When you picture a cheerleader, you probably imagine a woman. But in the early 20th century, cheerleading was all done by men. Frank Garitti argues that the association of cheerleading with women is due to the growth of the sports industry, which has drawn ever more diverse people into sports previously dominated by elite white men. But increased diversity in the sports industry has also meant increased exploitation. Nonetheless, while the industry is exploitative, sports themselves don't have to be. Cheerleading is just one example of how sport can be a tool of survival and self-actualization for marginalized people. Frank Garidi, welcome. Happy to be here. So we are going to talk about cheerleading and the history of sport. Um, You are a historian of sport. So I guess my first basic question is like, um, is cheerleading a sport? How does it fit into this category of sport? I'm going to give a typical historian answer to that question. I'm going to say it's both. It is a sport, <laughs> right? And it's evolved into a competitive enterprise, which has competitions in this country and is actually, in fact, a global phenomenon. But it is, I think, more properly known, historically speaking, as a practice that accompanies sporting events, right? Which is clear in cheerleading squads and dance teams that we see on the sidelines of college games, football and basketball in particular, and professional teams, football and basketball in particular as well, right? Right, right. Because I think when I think of cheerleading, I do think like on the sidelines. But I mean, even just what cheerleaders do on the sidelines is like, it's physically demanding. It demands athleticism, right? Like, It requires enormous amount of uh, skill uh, and athleticism, right? Uh, Historically speaking for women, you know, particularly before the passage of the Educational Amendments Act, Properly known as Title IX in 1972, you know, it was an arena where. Wait, and what, what was, what's Title IX? Title IX was the federal law that uh, that outlawed discrimination, gender discrimination in education in the United States. And what it did is that it actually propelled uh, the enormous um, growth of, of uh, sport among women and girls, which was not the intent of the law, but it actually that became one of the. Okay, so it was about. Countries. It was about education primarily, but it had a kind of knock-on effect of women's sports. Absolutely. Absolutely. A profound effect, right? So, But I think you were saying before Title IX, cheerleading? Yeah, cheerleading is something that was popular uh, and uh, among athletically inclined women who were perceived as conventionally attractive, uh, who had some skill sets but were not allowed to play in sports, so they did the thing on the sideline, which was cheerleading. Mm, Yeah. And so I feel like in what in what you've been saying already, um, the kind of the the place of women um, within cheerleading um, that's such a strong association um, has that always been the case? No, when cheerleading emerges in the late nineteenth century in this country among uh, an elite educational institutions like Princeton University, it was uh, overwhelmingly performed by men. But then after World War II we see this dramatic shift in the perceptions and in the actual demographics of cheerleading where it becomes increasingly feminized 
to the point where it's totally associated with with women uh, by the 1950s and 60s. Mm. So when you say feminized, do you just mean like associated with femininity? Both. Well, associated with femininity, right? And, and also with beauty culture, but also, but also demographically, it is populated by women. I mean, women are, uh, men are still part of the, of, of the scene, but not, not as prominent as they were in the earlier part of the century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that's also yeah. because of the fact that male sports becomes more and more popular. And uh, the sport industry in this country really starts to explode after World War II. And uh, so as that industry grows, to some degree, cheerleading becomes less popular among men, right? And so women sort of slot themselves into that, into that space in the, in the athletic world. Mm. So is, I mean, you, you've used the word industry, you know, the sports in, like you can think about sports as just kind of like personal entertainment, something people do for fun and, you know, but, but it sounds like for you part of this history of cheerleading is is that it becomes part of an industry where it's about presumably like money and but doing it professionally. Yes, it is an industry, uh, and this is particularly the case uh, with the cheerleading squads that are associated with the National Football League, the professional football league here in the United States. So professionalized cheerleading emerges in the 1970s with the creation of the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders uh, in 1972 which really popularizes professionalized and sexualized cheerleading. And so along with that comes the growth of a cheerleading industry, which benefits uh, institutions, uh, generates enormous profits for people who govern these industries, but not so much for cheerleaders themselves. Mm. Right, because I think I've, I've read things about like, college level sports players, like f- male American football players, it's quite exploitative from what I understand. And so I can only imagine that being a cheerleader, um, that, you know, again, you're really not getting the profits that that industry is making. Absolutely not. Um, Professionalization, commercialization results in uh, uh, intensified exploitation. (laughs) Uh, Right? Yeah. Um, So... Can you tell me a little bit more about the Dallas Cowboys in general? So there's like, there's a male American football team called Dallas Cowboys, and then there are corresponding women cheerleaders. Is that right? Well, they're, they're employing both. They're employing, right, football players, but they also start this sexualized cheerleading dance troupe in 1972. Uh, and, you know, my view on this is that these are parallel labor structures. Right. Uh, the male football player is getting paid more, certainly a lot more than the, the, the women cheerleaders on the sidelines, because the assumption was that these women should be just grateful for just getting fame. And, and in fact, they did become national and international celebrities in the 1970s and 80s. Right. They were seen as sex objects. They were seen as celebrities. They really enhanced the growth of the Dallas Cowboys franchise. The women, the women uh, cheerleaders were extremely important in marketing to, to, to women and to men who were perceived straight male uh, fans who were interested in eye candy. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about women and gender in relation to cheerleading, but I'm also now wondering, like, how does race play into this, right? Like, um, yeah, how does race play into the cheerleaders on that team? One of the things that fascinates me about this story is that the growth of the American, the U.S. American sport industry in the post-World War II period, and in particular the 1960s and 70s, is happening at the same time 
as a civil rights movement, the black freedom movement, and the second wave feminist movement, right? Uh, and, and that results in uh, the influx of athletic laborers into the sport industry as a result of desegregation, black, brown, and I would also say women athletes as well, right? Into spaces that have been dominated primarily by white men, okay? So that as black men are entering the playing field in unprecedented numbers at the professional, the collegiate, and the high school uh, level, um, um, we're also seeing this influx of women in into the realm of sports, black women and white women, although white women, it seems like from what we know now, benefited from these transformations more than women of color. And that really changes in subsequent decades. Yeah. So, I mean, just initially with the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, um, were they mostly, you said, kind of white women benefited most initially from, from this phase of feminist activism? Um, so w- was it mostly white women who were the cheerleaders initially on this team? Here's the paradox of the cheerleading story. Um, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and ch- professionalized cheerleading squad, as exploited as they were, were much more multi-ethnic. Uh, and intentionally so, because they were designed to market uh, the women uh, to a variety of male sports fans. And they also tended to be populated by upperly mobile or working class women. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's and that's an interesting dimension of the story. So on the one hand, they're marketed to men as sexual objects, but they are it is this arena of self-expression. And rebellion for working class women, sometimes from religious backgrounds, who were taught that dancing was bad or that they shouldn't, you know, this is this is beneath them. And they, and they saw this as a form of rebellion and self-expression. And you see this a lot in, in oral histories of, of cheerleaders from that era. Mm. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about gender, we've talked about race, we've talked about class and also sexuality. Um a word that you know that comes to my mind, which is, I guess, a kind of academic word, is intersectional, um, and I think that's what we're talking about here. Is that right? We are absolutely talking about intersectionality, right? Intersectionality—the term that is, you know, that is associated with Black feminist thought, and in particular, uh, the writings of the critical race theorist Kim Crenshaw. But it has deeper roots in Black feminist uh, thought that goes back to the Jim Crow era, but really becomes more and more recognized in the 1970s in the work of Angela Davis, Barbara Smith, the Combahee River Collective. These are Black women who are writing about feminism uh, uh, because they felt like they were excluded from the mainstream white dominated middle class uh, second wave feminism. So intersectionality is a term that gets thrown around a lot. You know, to me, it simply allows us to understand the overlapping nature of oppression along the lines of race, class, gender, and sexuality. And in my view, everything socially, politically is intersectional. Yeah. So, I mean, you've given me a a real kind of detailed picture of how that was working with the Dallas uh, Cowboy cheerleaders in the 1960s and 70s. Um, How should we think about cheerleading intersectionally today? I think in the case of competitive cheerleading, for example, even as it attracts aspiring working class, non-normative peoples, uh, it is still guided by the the exploitation of their labor, right? Uh, And we see this in the professionalized world as well, so that NFL cheerleaders today are still uh, undercompensated. So that um, in order for us to understand how cheerleading has become an industry, how it's become popular, but also how it attracts people who are trying to move up in society, 
we, we have to account for how it tends to attract people from marginalized social backgrounds and how certain institutions profit from that labor. Uh, and it's usually not the, not the laborers themselves. Yeah. Well, it makes me think also about RuPaul's Drag Race, which I guess we could debate whether that's a sport or not. But, um, but it was making me think about, like, there's a number of drag queens on that show who are, like, incredible dancers and, like, athletes and gymnasts. And for the most part, those are Black queens and often have come from backgrounds where, like, doing these like incredible death-defying things with your body is one thing you can do when you don't have money and you don't have sort of resources. No doubt, uh, because of the, the continual uh, impoverishment uh, that uh, the working classes of our society have experienced over the last 50 years, uh, right? And as in general, the sport and the entertainment realm you know, those who perform the entertainment, provide the entertainment, tend to be people from marginalized classes. That's, you know, that's not, has not always been the case, right? Sport in particular was an elite uh, phenomenon in the late 19th, early 20th century. And that changes over time. It changes over time in part as the industry grows and becomes more profitable, right? Again, connecting commercialization with um, intensified exploitation. Yeah, well, and I'm now kind of intrigued because, so you were saying like a century ago, maybe, sport was more of an elite thing that it wasn't I guess part of this structure of like exploitation and commercialism and so yeah I I know that your job is not to like find solutions but I'm just kind of curious like with a historian's perspective like do you have any sense of like what you would like to see sports become? I would like to see sports become less entangled in the sports industry. (laughs) I would like to see you know people play sports in a variety of ways all the time. There are all sorts of ways in which people experience the spiritual, physical, cultural benefits of engaging in sport that are not tied to the professional sport industry. You know, there's rich histories, certainly in black communities in this country, of of grassroots sporting cultures that were part of the ways in which black communities survived Jim Crow. Black communities survive, uh, you know, uh, the the perils of urban living. That I experienced this in my own life growing up in New York City in the 1970s and 80s. Hmm. Was there a specific sport that meant a lot to you in your own life, um, at least maybe in your childhood? Yes. Um, sport was a big part of my youth. My father is from the Dominican Republic. My mother is uh, Puerto Rican born in New York City. And baseball is huge among Caribbean Latino communities. So I played baseball from the time I was a kid until high school. I wasn't good enough to keep playing. Uh, <laughs> but I will say this, that uh, the most um, profound lessons I think I learned in life as a public school kid in the Bronx was not really in school, but on the baseball time, <laughs> right? Uh, it was profoundly impactful for me as a person because as a, as a young boy of color growing up, uh, I, was, I was usually underestimated by my teachers. And, I, and, I, and it really wasn't until I participated in sports where I felt like the knowledge and skills that I had were, were valued, right? So... Um, so I think that that was a profoundly impactful experience for me. And I think we see this in the history of Black and Latinx communities um, over and over again. Yeah. Well, and you said, you know, you weren't necessarily good enough at baseball to go beyond a certain stage with it. But maybe that's just making the argument you already made, which is like sports shouldn't be about an industry, but that actually in everyday life, non-commercial, you know, in your own neighborhood, that that's, that's where the biggest value can be. What if we thought about sport as something that could lead to some sort of, lead us down a path of self-actualization? 
<laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I believe that's possible. Frank Gritty, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one in which Frank discusses how playing sports can develop a valuable form of embodied knowledge, and another in which he explains how the COVID-19 pandemic and the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests have affected the sports industry. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.